And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Thursday, second best day of the week, and it's uh, post-Valentine's Day, so all, it's all you guys just relax. <laughs> it's all good. So, uh, you know, I told you yesterday my wife had scheduled dinner uh, at 6.30. <laughs> people are like going, 6.30? Who does that? Well, yeah, but for normal people, it's like, okay, that's that's dinner time. But, yeah. you know, when, when you have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, 6.30 is late for dinner. So anyway, we went to dinner. She scheduled uh, dinner at a restaurant that we had our first date at. Oh, so she how was romantic. being very romantic. Yeah. And uh, so we went in, and believe it or not, we, uh, this has been like 15 years now. One of the guys is, still works at the restaurant. Really? And so walked in and remembered us. So it was it was pretty funny. But anyway, great Valentine's Day. Here we are, ready to kick off on uh, Thursday. It's a holiday-shortened week next week, so Monday's a holiday. Markets are closed, so we'll be back here on Tuesday. Um, but, you know, this is going to, you know, we're now going to the last half of February, which tends to be a little bit weaker. Now, doesn't really seem to be that way right now. Of course, yesterday, nice rally in the markets. This morning, futures are pointing up again. Um, you know, just kind of a market here that just doesn't really want to kind of quit. And, and that's just where we are. Lots of exuberance, lots of excitement. But again, as we've talked about before, um, you know, that's kind of where we are. Now, this today, so a couple of data points out over the last couple of days. The National Federation of Independent Business put out their data yesterday. I'm going to write an article on this because I want to uh, show you some of the charts and graphs. So I'm going to work on this over the next few days for next Friday. Um, but in the NFIB report, now that is small businesses. Small businesses comprise about 50% of all the employment in the country very important segment of our economy. Think about small businesses as a function of everything you do every day. I mean, it's, a, it's your barber shops on the, on the street corner, your nail salons, um, your auto mechanics, all those businesses, right? Most of those small businesses employ less than five employees in general. So again, very important to the overall employment picture, very important to the economy. Their outlook declined. So despite the fact that we're hearing all this news about stronger economic growth and everything else, it's not being reflected in small businesses. And that's an important factor because small businesses don't have access to certain things like Apple does, as an example. Um, Apple can buy back shares and drive their stock price up. Small businesses don't have access to that. They don't have access to uh, you know, uh, the bond market to issue a $5 billion debt offering to buy back shares and issue dividends. They don't have that access, right? They go to the bank. The bank actually looks at their financials and go, yeah, we can't loan you any money. So credit conditions are tightening up for small businesses. Their outlook is getting negative and remains negative. In fact, small business optimism is at levels that are normally associated with economic recessions. And it has been that way for a while. So what small, what's going on with small businesses reflects what's kind of why you see this big dichotomy in the economy between the surging stock market that has everybody just kind of over the moon about how strong and great the economy is and then why everybody else you talk to is like, man, this economy sucks. <laughs> you know, take a look at the presidential poll ratings. Um, you know, how, how's the economy? Don't like it. 
that's what's telling you what's going on right now. So again, I'm going to write up a report on this because there's lots of very interesting data. But there's also a very high correlation, and not surprisingly, between the National Federation of Independent Business and small cap stocks. And as we've talked about here over the last couple of days in particular, you know, small caps, you know, over the last really couple of years have not done a tremendous amount. And like I said, there is a very high correlation between the National Federation of Independent Business. That small business index has a very high correlation to what actually goes on with small cap stocks. And that continues to suggest that small caps are, are going to remain under pressure because of the, the flows that coming into those companies from, from people buying goods and services from them, right? That's, that remains very weak. Their outlook for sales has been weakening. Their outlook for employment has been weakening. So again, that's why you know, we continue to see pressure in the small cap stock space because of what's happening really kind of in the underneath of, of the economy. So here's what you need to know before the bell this morning though. Um, and like I said, I'm going to write that article up. Today we have retail sales coming out. There's an expectation that retail sales are going to come in weaker than expected. We'll see. Um, a lot of that data has not been coming in, in line with expectations, but that's going to be one of the big economic reports out today that will potentially have an impact on the overall market. But again, on a short-term basis, the market is doing just fine. And again, we kind of bounced right off that 20-day moving average um, yet on uh, Tuesday, on, on Wednesday, rose nicely. And, and today we're going to try, again, if markets remain up today, we're going to try and start challenging that previous peak. So again, absolutely nothing wrong with the market. The trend remains very much intact. So again, if we take a look at this rising trends I talked about yesterday. There, you know, there is this big gap, unfortunately, right now between the market and this 200-day moving average. That's going to be more challenging uh, for the markets to continue to go up because of that big deviation um, between the S&P and the underlying 200-day uh, moving average. So, uh, so again, the, the further we get away from that, kind of the harder it is for prices to continue to move up. So again, at some point, we're going to get some type of corrective action. Um, the other side that is interesting, and we talked about this previously, but bonds are also continuing to look very well. We've recently had a nice pullback in bond prices. Um, yields went up, ran right into the 200-day moving average, have come back down uh, yesterday a bit. So again, yields look to be a little bit lower this morning. But again, we've continued to kind of work in this process of improvement in, in the yield flow of what's happening with bonds. So again, bonds have had a nice retracement here. And if we take a look at actual bond prices themselves, uh, bond prices came down, they're holding support. And again, we're getting pretty oversold here um, after that recent run-up. We had this nice spike that started back in November, got very, very overbought. We talked then about needing to work off some of that overbought condition. We've worked through a lot of that process. So bonds are starting to look a little bit better. So if we start to get some weakness in the, in the overall market, just to kind of reduce some of this kind of overbought, more exuberant conditions, we should see some rotation from stocks into bonds, at least in the near term, for just kind of that safety kind of risk off trade. We'll, we'll see what happens, but that continues to be one of the outlooks that, that we're kind of looking for right now. One of the interesting uh, situations going on is with one company in particular, and NVIDIA um, continues to just have a very, very strong run. And really what is interesting is that yesterday, 
Uh, this rally in NVIDIA actually has now overtaken uh, the third spot in the uh, index. It's now surpassed Amazon and Google in terms of market cap. It only has to overtake Apple and Microsoft now uh, in order to be the number one stock in the index. And at its current pace of acceleration, that may happen sooner than later. But there's a big difference between Apple and, and of course, Amazon and Google uh, in the amount of revenues. Amazon sells a whole lot more in revenue than actual NVIDIA does. So, but again, you know, this is a market about excitement, exuberance over AI, and we continue to see this just very sharp acceleration. In fact, just this year, um, you know, NVIDIA is up almost 30% just this year so far. So again, it's just been a very, very sharp increase at this point. So again, there's, there's, again, this just goes back to the fact, you know, we have just this really big exuberance in technology stocks in particular. And again, when you take a look at the Magnificent Seven versus every other stock in the index, there is a vast dichotomy that's going on. Again, small caps, mid caps, really underperforming relative to the large cap index, which is mostly driven by companies like Amazon, Apple, and NVIDIA. So, all right, that's what you need to know before the bell. We'll come back, pick up with Michael Leibowitz. We've had lots of Fed speakers out, big question on policies. We'll talk about all that coming up next on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues. If the Valentine's Day glow has faded, promise you'll respect your lover's credit. Communicate about your money and share together our first candid coffee for 2024. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Saturday, February 24th. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony. Register now at Real investmentadvice.com. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Candid coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. According to a uh, new program being trying to be rolled out by the Obama, uh, by the Biden, Obama, <laughs> by the Biden administration, uh, the Biden administration has now granted permission to several states to implement a new Medicaid waiver program that will allow states to pay for housing as part of the government's initiative to reclassify homelessness as a health care issue. Now. Arizona and Oregon are be the first two pilot states about this. And this just popped up this morning. And so I'm, this has nothing to do with Mike. I just want to bring this to your attention. Um, this is about a $1.5 billion program that will use Medicare, Medicaid funds to add another group of people to the roles of Medicare, Medicaid. And, you know, this is the problem that I've talked about over and over and over again here on the show is that we have a 70 trillion it's actually more like 90 trillion dollars now 90 trillion dollar unfunded liability of medicare medicaid social security prescription drug benefits that are all mandatory spending in our budget so everybody's worried about the deficit everybody's worried about how much money we're spending and yet the government over the years since 1960 has continued to add more and more people of different 
every, every time there's a, a some initiative that we want to do to try to help some group of people, widows, orphans, whoever it is, we stick them onto Social Security or Medicare, Medicaid, etc. And this is just another example of that. So here we have this whole problem. You know, people are writing articles and the Social Security Board is actually coming out saying, hey, we're going to have several programs that are bankrupt by 2035 because we just simply don't have enough money coming in. We have fewer and fewer people on the rolls that are actually paying into the system. Now you've got everybody from, you know, the elderly to the sick, widows and orphans, et cetera, all taking out of the system, illegals, all taking money out of the system. And now we're going to add another $1.5 billion drag onto the program. And look, I'm not saying it's not a good thing, right? I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of the homeless situation, right? But we can spend $113 billion sending money over to the Ukraine, right, for a war that and, and, and support their uh, pension system, Right. We can't use a few billion of that money to take care of it. We have to put more people to drag on Medicare, Medicaid. So, you know, this is the, but this is the problem. This is always the kitty. In or, and, and surprisingly, this always happens in election year. This is always the time that we want to do something good for people. And so we go tap into a system that's grossly under pressure from a massive baby boomer generation that's taking benefits out of the system. Again, that's what it's there for. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't get the benefit. I'm not saying that at all. But we keep putting more and more people onto the system to take money out of it. And we don't have enough money, uh, enough people. We have less than two people paying into the system for every person that's taking out. So every time you add more and more people to that, it's just less money that there is. And again, we have this, and again, we talk about the federal debt at $34 trillion. We don't talk about all the IOUs of Social Security which is theoretically money that the government owes itself. But at the end of the day, it's money that's got to be paid somewhere because you still have to fund Social Security at some point. At some point, that's got to be paid. So you may owe it to yourself, but it's left, it's left pocket, right pocket money, right? So anyway, just it was kind of interesting this morning just because, again, we talk about this all the time. And as I've said over and over again, one of the biggest challenges to Social Security is that it's a bucket of money that everybody wants to keep throwing more people into. And this is just another example of that. Okay. Sorry, Mike. Got a lot of stuff to get into. That's all right. Um, That's all right. Get it off your chest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it's not that. It's just that, you know, this is it, this is a huge problem. Social Security, the underfunding of Social Security is a huge problem. And you've got, uh, you know, more than there's there's a lot of retirees that depend on Social Security for at least 50 percent of their their retirement. And there's a, a, a big chunk that retire on it, depend on it for 90% of their retirement. So, you know, at some point you're going to have to fix it. And, and that's, this is not the way to start fixing it by putting more people onto it. Um, no, I, I agree. I agree. You got to you, you have to consider where the money's coming from and it shouldn't be coming from the Social Security system. Pass a bill. Yeah. Pass the Ukraine, Israel. <laughs> homeless uh, bill. Social, homeless bill. <laughs> right. Um, all right, uh, let's get to work. We got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Uh, we've got a massive amount of economic data out today, and you know, so far, you know, this economic data. You know, of course, you know, we saw CPI come in a little bit hotter than expected on Wednesday. The market sold off. Um, we've got retail sales today, import prices, export prices, which will also be also kind of feed into that inflation narrative. I mean, if import prices have had a big jump or export prices have had a big jump, you know, that's going to you know kind of suggests there may be some more inflation in the system than not. 
the New York Fed, um, Empire Manufacturing Index, the Philly Fed Index, Industrial Production Capacity Utilization, Business Inventories, the NHAB Housing Market Index. It's, and, and the reason we have all this today is because Monday's a holiday. So everything that would be on Monday is getting moved backwards. So we've just got a slew of data that's coming out today. Um, is, is, do you see any of this data causing a big issue for the market initialist claim, uh, initial jobless claims also out today? Yeah, I think jobless claims and retail sales are the two big numbers to watch. They're, they're, they are expecting some weakness in retail sales. And the, the people expecting it, like Bank of America is expecting weakness. Bank of America has access to our credit card information, mm-hmm. you know, all the credit cards that they run. So their data, you know, is potentially or their outlook is a little potentially uh, a little better than consensus. So, you know, the Fed wants to know that inflation will continue to come down and the Fed therefore wants to be assured that the economy is not heating up again, that we're not that we're not driving demand, which ultimately provides somewhat of a tailwind for prices. So a weaker retail sales number would kind of calm down the bond market a little bit after uh, Tuesday's CPI number. Uh, and tomorrow we also get PPI, which uh, will also be kind of the second piece of the inflation puzzle. All the the manufacturing indexes, you, there were a slew of those you said coming mm-hmm. out today, Philly, uh, New York, I forgot. Yeah. Um, those have been interesting. You you kind of started off with the uh, NFIB, the small business mm-hmm. survey, and how weak it was. Yep. And it, what's also interesting is that the manufacturing, the, the regional manufacturing indexes have been very weak as well. And I stress that because the national index has not been weak. But the New York, the Philly, the Richmond, uh, Dallas, uh, there were a couple others came in very weak with things like new orders weakening significantly, which is not a great uh, look into the future. So we have all this data that's all over the map. You know, like you said earlier, traditionally, weakness and NFIB poses problems for small caps, but also the economy. Well, so does manufacturing indices. But the government debt, the, the deficit is so high right now in a good economy, you know, as a percentage of the economy, that it's offsetting a lot of it. Um, and, th- and that's what makes our jobs difficult is we can see kind of what the organic economy is doing, but it doesn't matter if there's just a flow of money coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I posted a chart out this morning on um, on Twitter, X, whatever, YZ, whatever they want to call it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it showed fiscal stimulus um, that is in the system globally. Right. And we have the highest level of fiscal stimulus ever right now over the last 15 years, which is it's kind of amazing, right? Because, you know, interest rates are up and it doesn't seem like there's, you know, all this stimulus that's going on. And it's just funny that you see such a large amount of fiscal stimulus still running around the system, even though we don't have, you know, we've got a booming stock market, the economies are doing fine. And you've got this huge, massive flood of fiscal stimulus that's, you know, kind of keeping it all together. And there's not a crisis that's going on. Um, Normally, when you have this much fiscal stimulus, there's been a problem, you know, either economically or something happening. And you just don't see that right now. Right. Stimulus tends to go up and down kind of inverse with the economy. When the economy is weak, there's more stimulus and vice versa. And we just haven't seen that that 
reaction this time. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 interesting. I, it makes you kind of question, like, what is there something else going on that we don't know about <laughs> that we need to be paying attention to? Um, right. But uh, but yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. Is that you know we have this kind of very loose fiscal stimulus here. The you know the Federal Reserve is you know talking about cutting rates, which is also stimulative. You know later this year, uh, the markets on the CPI report on. What is today? Thursday on Tuesday, um, a little bit hotter than expected, and you know we had the market sell off rather sharply. Then yesterday, it was like immediately they went back to five to seven rate cuts again. It's like, oh, never mind that. We're still going to get a bunch of rate cuts. Um, you know, this market is very, you know, very focused on you know the Fed cutting rates, and this is going to lead to higher asset prices. The fear of missing out. Um, did you take away anything from that inflation report that you know may change the narrative for the Fed? Yeah, I just don't think that inflation report was very accurate. Uh, there were quite a few things in the inflation report that were just either one time in nature. So there were a lot of January price hikes that were higher than expected, especially like medical insurance, those insurance type fields. And they were higher than expected, but they're one time. They're not going to recur. And then the other big one is rent. Uh, rent shelter costs are a third of CPI, and they said that they went up 0.6% for the month. That's 7.2% for the year. Mm -hmm. Yet, real-time rent prices are flat to declining. Yeah, hold that, um, hold that, hold that thought right there. We'll pick up on the other side of the break because uh, there's a couple of other aspects that CPI report we'll take a look at as well. Um, and does that change the Fed's? attitude about hiking rates or cutting rates um if inflation is hotter than expected you know that's that was the initial concern markets got over that very quickly we'll talk about that more with michael Leibowitz right after the break don't go away investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning um we were just talking a little bit before the break about the recent inflation report and does that change anything that's kind of going on with the Federal Reserve? Of course, the market expecting a tremendous amount of rate cuts this year, five to seven. That's trying to come back here a bit as of late. In other words, the, the, you know, we've talked about before that the market's expectation for rate cuts and the Fed's expectation for rate cuts are, are too far apart and those are going to have to come back together at some point. And so the question becomes, you know, did this hotter than expected print and CPI? Now, again, you know, the, the Fed does not really pay attention to CPI. They pay attention to PPI, which is on Friday. So we'll get this. We'll get that report out tomorrow. Now, if that number is a lot hotter than expected, then, you know, this market may have another convulsion again. And, and I think, you know, when you see the reaction to the market on Wednesday, that really kind of shows you 
you know, kind of how nervous traders are really in general and, and how kind of offsides this market is because, again, the initial need, and this is what we've talked about before, you know, what will cause a, a sell-off in the market is something that's really unexpected that traders aren't expecting. And all of a sudden, everybody says sell at the same time, and that's how you have a big decline. And we kind of saw that on the, 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 the initial stages of that on, on Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, or Tuesday, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, so tomorrow, if that PPI number comes in a whole lot hotter than expected, we could see another big sell-off tomorrow. So just, you know, we're in a very tenuous market at this moment because we're so overbought, we're so stretched, we're so exuberant, everybody's in the pool it won't take much to reverse this market fairly quickly. And that's why we talked about on Monday taking profits, kind of rebalancing some risk. We're going to you know, keep doing that as we kind of as we kind of go further. And importantly, um, the last half of February tends to be weaker anyway. So we'll we'll kind of see what happens here. But, Mike, you know, talking about the CPI report, you were just you know saying that um, there were some anomalies in that CPI report that the market kind of saw through at the end of the day on Tuesday, the market kind of started figuring that out, started rallying back here a bit, had a nice day yesterday. Um, but is it a but but are these one off kind of effects in the market? Are we going to keep seeing this kind of in CPI? Well, I, I think the bigger I think that the ones I mentioned earlier are one off events. And look, th there's a lot of data that goes into CPI. Some of it's certainly going up. I'm not saying that every piece of the puzzle that yeah, every piece of data that, that's used to calculate CPI is going down. But we can look at the big ticket items and shelter is a big ticket item. And what shelter is, is two forms of rent. One is rent at, that people actually pay, that's via survey. And one is called imputed rent, owner's equivalent rent. And they impute that from a combination of rents, of utilities and home prices. So that's fine. And that's 33. That's about a third of CPI PCE, which the Fed depends more on. It's only 15 percent. So even if these shelter prices are correct, it's going to have much less of an effect on PCE, which is the Fed's inflation monitor. But back to CPI, here's what's really important is that the rent that the the shelter costs in general are lag what's happening in the real world significantly. Here's what happens. They take a poll every six months. They poll you, they poll someone, they pull the same person every six months. So my rent may have been adjusted upward or downward four months ago, but if they polled me six months ago, they're not, or four months ago, they're not gonna pull me again for another two months. So, so my data may not even hit the system for a couple months. Now, here's the other part of it. It's an average of of everyone. So rents reset every month. Mine, you know, mine may reset in March. Yours may not reset till June. So there's what's called a new rent index. And the BLS puts this out, the same BLS that does CPI. Their new tenant, it's called the new tenant index. The new tenant index is down about 5%. So people that are, whose rents are resetting at the moment, or they're just newly renting, are seeing rent declines. That's what we want to know. That's the trend. You know, when we look at inflation, year over year inflation is nice, but what we really like to focus is on is the trend of the last few months. Is the trend in lower, is the trend in higher? We don't have a lot of faith in the inflation data 
because it's impossible to really do correctly. But we do have a lot of faith in the trends. So we look at those trends. When you look at shelter costs, it's an average of 12 months. There's a lot of data that's just very stale and old. And we know what the trends are in, in rent costs. They are flat, rising slightly or declining based on Zillow, based on, on real you know companies that do this for a living, based on the BLS new tenant index. So if you look at CPI excluding shelter, it's 1.4%. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you know, we, look, the, the shelter component's huge, too. Again, you know, there were increases in medical costs. There were increases in uh, some other areas of, of the CPI report. But those have such, you know, when you talk about, you know, when you actually look at the eight major components, um, shelter makes up more than a third of that index all by itself. So a big change in that index has a a outsized weight on the rest of the index as a whole. Yeah, there were some other areas, as you said, that went up, but those have very minor impacts to the overall rate of inflation. It's that shelter component that was the big driver. Right. And there was actually another interesting one was food. Food was up. Mm -hmm. Yet most indicators of food costs have come down over the last couple of months. Right. So tomorrow, uh, Friday's PPI data will give us, I guess, tomorrow's PPI data will give us a little indication of what's really going on with food costs as well. But, I, you know, I think that the, the point is we can't glue ourselves to each monthly report. Again, focus on the trends. Look at the last three to six months, how they're trending. Don't get keyed up on any one report. And this isn't just inflation data. This is all of the data. It's very skewed. The government knows it, it, it's off. It's impossible to really get all the data for all this stuff. Certainly they could do it better, but there's a ton of effort put into this. I don't think it's political, politically motivated. I just think it's just an immense amount of data that, that their collection of data, the surveys, the imputations are just off. Yeah. And we have to accept that for what it is, but we can't, you know, and the market will jump around based on these numbers. But what you'll find even with the markets is that, like, you know, for instance, CPI came out stock. The S&P was down almost 100 points at one point. Mm -hmm. Since then, it's almost gone back everything it lost. Right. So the market over time will readjust to what the data is really telling you. Well, and again, but I think therein lies, you know, the, the bigger issue with the market, which is that. You know, when, you know, we're talking about inflation, right? You know, you're right. Um, you know, the trend of inflation is lower. We're heading towards that 2%. It may take us longer to get there than what the Fed thinks, but we are heading in that direction. So the market should be saying, okay, look, you know, that, okay, CP, CPI report was a little higher. Pfft, who cares? The trend is there. But that's the disconnect that's going on because it, the market's really not looking at the CPI report. The market's looking at the CPI report only in the function of what does that mean if the Fed's going to cut rates or not and create more stimulus. And that's right. the big disconnect we have with this market. We have this whole market that shifted from, you know, you know, when you and I were growing up in this business, CPI reports would come and go and nobody cared. Right. I mean, you know, this just didn't really matter that much. And the Fed didn't matter. And, and you know, we paid attention to fundamentals and the things that actually drove stock prices earnings. Um, you know, now we're so keyed. Everything is okay. That's a that that report. What does that mean? The Fed's going to do? I mean, this whole market is now just tied to whether or not the Fed's going to provide more stimulus and more accommodative policies. Right, and it's looking at like, for instance, Austin Goolsby, 
from uh, the Chicago Fed spoke yesterday. He was very dovish. I thought he was correct in certain things. And he said, don't focus on one report. These da this data is flawed. CPI is lower than we think it is. And it's trending lower. And I think the Fed should start cutting rates. Right. Uh, then you have someone else coming out saying the complete opposite. And then Powell kind of totes the line in the middle. And every one of these speakers can move the market. Uh, the Fed moves the market. The Fed is the market. The Fed is liquidity. And that's a function of all the debt we have, both speculative debt, but also just debt in the real economy, personal, you know, corporate debt, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. So when you have a highly indebted system, the amount of new debt to help roll over the old debt and to create new debt is what matters most to the economy. And that's where we are as a nation. And it's it's only going to get mm. worse. We're only going to become more dependent on the Fed, um, you know, fiscal dominance. The, the government is dependent on the Fed. But we, too, as consumers, you know, consumer, you know, whatever there must be a word for it, consumer <laughs> dominance, corporate dominance. Uh, you know, the Fed has dominance over everything right now because liquidity is the most important factor. It doesn't matter what NVIDIA will ever do in the future. Right now, it's all about liquidity. It doesn't matter what S&P earnings are, right? Lance, like you said, valuations are, no one does the homework anymore because it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't matter right now. It, what matters is what will the Fed or won't the Fed do? So, and that brings up a really great segue. When we come back, I want to talk for a I've got a couple of things to talk about, and they both wind up having to do with Japan. Uh, one, I'd like to talk a little bit about what's happening with Japan right now in their economy versus the stock market. Very interesting scenario. And also, Mike has the latest article out about Toyota versus Tesla, and we'll talk about that also. Don't go away. More coming up right here on The Real Investment Show. Be right back. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You know, so talking about fiscal policy and talking about monetary policy and, you know, we talk a lot about debt. And of course, there's a, a lot of conversation about, oh, it's, you know, we have 130% of debt to GDP and, you know, it's a train wreck. It's a train wreck of coming. <laughs> you know, around the bend, you know, for the U.S. because of all this debt. Hey, I absolutely understand that, right? Um, there are certainly consequences to too much debt in an economy. And as we've talked about before, all you have to do is go look at Japan as an example. Now, there's a very interesting situation going on in Japan right now because the Nikkei has been doing phenomenal. You know, we talked about all this fiscal stimulus that's going on around the world. So, you know, if you take a look at the Magnificent Seven, uh, they're called granolas in, in, in Europe, GlaxoSmithKline, Novartis, et cetera. 
those stocks are doing great, right? And their and their indexes are doing well. The Nikkei's been doing fantastic. It's been having a, a massive bull run. At the same time that it's having this massive bull run, Japan just fell into recession. They've had two negative quarters in a row of, of negative G, uh, two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. Japan has rolling recessions about every three to five years. It's just a a constant grind on the economy. They can't get economic growth to sustain itself because they have 230% of debt to GDP. The more debt you have, the less economic growth you're going to have. You may get spurts of activity when you're doing a bunch of monetary interventions, as Japan's been trying to do. They've been trying to put caps on yields. They've tried to do monetary interventions. They the, the Bank of Japan owns 80% of the ETFs. They own a big chunk of the bond market. They're doing everything, everything they can to try to keep Japan out of a massive depression. But if you look at the actual economy itself, it's terrible. You know, the young generation, most of them live at home with their families. They won't get married because they can't get a job. There's no real opportunity. Their pension system is completely a mess because it's so massive. And, they, and, and unfortunately, you think we've got longevity here. <laughs> the longevity in Japan is really long. So it's just one kind of rolling problem after the other. But the market doesn't reflect that, right? The market's doing these phenomenal things. The real economy's doing something else. And I just think it's interesting because, you know, when we look around the world, everybody's like, oh, it's great. We're doing fantastic. You know, we've got, yeah, everything's great because we're, we're funding everything with debt. We spent $2.5 of debt for every dollar's worth of GDP growth in the fourth quarter. So it's just all this money that we're spending. Every time we turn around, it's a new bill for this. It's a new bill for that. Here's another $80 billion here, $100 billion here, whatever. And that's all funding economic growth. But there is a consequence long term, which is less productivity, less economic prosperity, and lower rates of growth, and ultimately deflation. You're going to get lower prices and lower wages. Um, I just thought it was interesting, though, the, the headline this morning, Mike, you know, Japan back into a GD, uh, back into a recession, just lost its uh, spot as the world's third largest economy to Germany. Um, so, you know, any, any thoughts on that? Can I ask you always quiz me? Can I yeah. quiz you a little bit here? No, absolutely not. Go ahead. <laughs> what's this by GDP? What's the second largest uh, economy nation by GDP? Yeah. Um, Russia. China. China, okay. China is pretty much in a recession now, right? Right. Oh, yeah. What's number three? It's either Germany. Well, it was it was Japan. Now it's Germany. Okay, it's Germany. Japan, J Germany's in a recession. They've had two quarters of negative growth. Okay. Next up, Japan. Recession. They just entered it this morning. UK comes after that. They are in a recession. So... Kind of going back to this whole where we started, the NFIB, the manufacturing, regional manufacturing indexes, mm -hmm. all the big economic nations or, you know, most of them are in a recession. I mean, it's unbelievable that our economy is growing so strong right now, but it does offer caution for the future. But Lance, you know that Japan's GDP is lower than where it was 30 years ago? Right. And that, well, that's my you know point. That that's, that's the debt, though, right? But I mean, you, but you also know that it's soaring Nikkei 225 index <laughs> is below where it was 30 years ago. Right. 
Well, I know, but that, but you know, the point was is is, and, I, and you're absolutely right. And and but this is the whole issue is that yeah, it's doing great right now, but again, they, you know, their economy's gone nowhere for over 30 years now, right. and you know, it, it, you know, the the breadth of their economic prosperity continues to deteriorate. And this is a country, by the way, that's one third the size of of the U.S., and they do right. monetary policy that's three times the size of what we do. And they right. still have, and, and just and it just goes to show you the, the point is is it just goes to show you that all of these band aids that we stick on has a long term economic consequence and we're not willing to look at Japan and say oh this is where we're headed but it's a great roadmap of where we're headed yeah and it's also important to realize that U S liquidity travels the world and I think a lot of you know a lot of times speculation and and investor behavior also spans the world. So, you know, investors in the U.S. just have a lot of money and that money is spent worldwide. So it's going to places like Japan yeah. where they, quote unquote, see value. Um, so it's not surprising, I guess, in some aspect that Japan's market is doing really well while its economy is in the tank again. <laughs> right. Well, also, again. maybe else has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, the government buys a lot of their ETFs, a lot of their bonds, and then we do the carry trade with Japan. So, you know, Correct. there's there's a lot of other impacts. Uh, but speaking of Japan, uh, you have an article out on uh, on Wednesday on the website talking about Toyota versus Tesla. Um, you want to give us a quick rundown on it? Yeah. So um, actually, we just bought a new car and we bought a hybrid Toyota. And so buying the car kind of got me really looking at the auto market and not only what was best for us, but it just, you know, I, I kind of got the full state of the auto market and kind of here's what I learned is that hybrids are selling just as quickly as electric vehicles. Uh, they both represent almost 9% of new cars sold in the U S. So I didn't realize that the uptake on hybrids was keeping up with EVs. EVs have a lot of issues. Uh, first of all, they depreciate really quickly. Their interest cost to borrow against them is higher. Their insurance costs are higher. And there's a lot of what they call range anxiety, that the car can only go 300 plus miles and there just aren't you know, charging stations like there are gas stations and the charging time is longer. So, it appears that electric vehicles may be the vehicle of the future. We may all be driving them in 20 years, but it's probably not the battery that's in the electric vehicles mm. today. So the question is, how do we get from here to whatever the future is? And it may not be electric vehicles. It could be hydrogen. It could be, God only knows what it could be. We could be flying. Mm. Um, so it appears to me that the, the, the technology that kind of spans the gap could very easily be hybrid technology with electric, with EV technology. But Toyota has what's coming out. And by the way, Toyota is the lead leader. Toyota started the Prius in the US in 2000. So they're, they're, they know what they're doing. They can do it profitably. Ford and GM and a lot of the other automakers are, are kind of just starting to get into it. And it's going to be hard for them to turn profits. At the same time, Ford and GM are backing off on EV production because it's just financially not working out for them and sales are not what they thought they would be. So it kind of leads us down the path. Well, what's the future going to be? And it seems like the next big advance are what they call solid state batteries. They, they are lithium, 
but they they have first of all they cost less they weigh less they get twice as much of a charge so you can go let's say six seven eight hundred miles per charge and you can charge them in a very short period of time i think it's 10 15 minutes toyota is leading the uh leading the world in solid state technology as far as the automakers go. They think they may have one out by 2027. Sounds great, but it's a function of cost. Can they produce them at a cost that makes sense to mass produce cars? And that's the great unknown. Yeah, so now we go back to Tesla. Well, what does Tesla offer? Do they Are they really offering yesterday's battery technology? Well, they're, you know, Musk is not dumb. He's you know, one of the great innovators of our time. And they're working on a new battery as well, but it's it's basically a better version of the same battery. So you get 10, 15% better mileage, slightly less cost, less weight, et cetera. So it's, you know, 2.0 of uh, the current lithium battery. Um, so, the funny part is, though, when you kind of look at the future, Toyota has the hybrid, which is keeping up with EV. Potentially, they have the solid state, which could just take over the EV market. And they, for a while, they could be the Tesla mass producing solid state while everyone else catches up to them. Te Toyota has a PE of nine or 10. Tesla has a PE of roughly, what is it, 70. Mm -hmm. So the dynamics in the the, what we'll call the future of automobile market have changed a lot, but valuations haven't shifted. So in my opinion, Toyota offers, even though it's had a hell of a run here and it's probably worth waiting for it to pull back, it offers a lot of value and a potentially a nice option if this solid state technology proves to be worthy. And, and it's interesting too, because if you take a look at EV, uh, EV market share, um, it's actually been losing market share to um, internal combustion engines over the course of the last several months. So, you know, you know, there's there's a couple of issues that are playing in there uh, for Tesla, for sure. Um, but it is interesting. You take a look at Toyota Motor stock. Um, it's just been on a tear while Tesla right. has really been struggling as of late. So it, it, it's it's a very fascinating article. If you have if you get a chance, get by the website, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, Michael's article is out yesterday. Toyota versus Tesla. It's on the website now. And of course, tomorrow we'll have uh, Michael, uh, sorry, uh, Richard Russo and Danny Ratliff here in the morning for Financial Fitness Friday. And then, of course, you've got a long weekend. So we'll see you next week. All right. Have a great day. See you then.